13 years ago, I started experimenting with no-till. I knew it would not work for me like everybody else thinks, and I just wanted to try it to prove to myself it would not work. Welcome to the 286th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Sometimes, someone who's the most resistant to a particular innovation eventually becomes its biggest advocate. There's something about the benefits of a new idea earning one's trust the hard way. For example, when Everett Rolfing sold his dairy cows 13 years ago, he knew that alfalfa, a major bovine feed that at one point covered half his farm, would no longer be part of the rotation. That was a problem, because this perennial forage is very good at keeping soil in place. And Rolfing is mindful of soil loss on his farm, which is hilly, and considered highly erodible. But as he made clear at the top of this podcast, one thing Everett was certain of was that an erosion control system like no-till cropping was not an option. He had heard all the knocks against this system. It won't work on the kind of clay soils found in his part of southeastern Minnesota's Winona County. Weed control and fertilizer incorporation are difficult, and it would prevent the soil from warming up in the spring. But he decided to give it a try anyway, just to prove to himself once and for all that this system was not feasible on his land. Well, as it turns out, after a few hits and misses, his 550-acre corn-soybean operation is now 100% no-tilled, or, as Everett concedes, at least minimum till, since he does do some light tillage with a vertical tiller. And for the past three years, all those acres have also been protected during the shoulder seasons by a rye cover crop. Each spring, he plants his cash crops straight into the standing rye, a method called planting green. The rye is then terminated with herbicide, creating a thick mulch that protects and feeds the soil. Everett made these cropping changes originally just to cut erosion, and that happened pretty quickly. But these days, what's impressed him the most about this system is how much it's increased his soil's biological health. That's resulted in better aggregate structure, making it so his fields manage water much better and are more resilient when it comes to extreme weather conditions. But Everett warns that although erosion control benefits showed up quickly, Increased soil biological activity takes time. In fact, after years of conventional tillage, he found his soils were pretty much lifeless and unable to break down residue from previous year's crops. Soil doesn't come back to life overnight. But during a recent LSP Soil Health Field Day, Everett took a group of farmers to a stand of soybeans that was just a few weeks from harvest. The soil between the rows was absent of residue from last year's crop. The rye cover crop had also broken down and become part of the soil. These were sure signs of good active biology after all these years. It turns out the short-term erosion control benefits of conservation tillage convinced Everett to stick with the system long enough to cash in on some long-term soil health dividends. The farmer is a crack mechanic and works on a lot of other farmers' tractors and makes him mindful of what it costs to run machinery on the land. He's convinced that his use of conservation tillage and cover crops isn't just saving soil, it's saving fuel, wear and tear in his machinery, and, that most valuable of resources, time. That's money in the bank. On a recent Saturday morning, Everett took a break from working on a tractor in his immaculate machine shed to talk about how he was won over by no-tell and the ways it's paid off in terms of healthier soil as well as a healthier bottom line. Well, I farmed 550 acres of tillable. Uh, I was a dairy farmer the whole life, so over half the acres were alfalfa. 
I sold the dairy cows 13 years ago due to bad knees. And I knew eliminating a lot of the alfalfa, I had to make changes from erosion. I was full tillage. Soil had to be totally black. 13 years ago, I started experimenting with no-till. I knew it would not work for me, like everybody else thinks, and I just wanted to try it to prove to myself it would not work. So over the 13 years, it's been a gradually processed transitioning into it. I guess I would not recommend anybody jump in 100% the very first year because it is a learning curve involved to it. Probably got into the cover cropping about five or six years ago. That was the same thing. Just start with a few acres. Um, I was doing only after combining beans because I didn't think there'd be any benefit putting cover crop after corn. Um, I do have some corn on corn, but I'm a primarily corn bean rotation. Three years ago, I started 100% cover cropping. So that's how it is today. 100% of the acres are cover cropped and I plant everything green. I don't terminate any of the cover crop until after planting. I like to get it between 14 and 16 inches tall before I terminate it, so that's the height more. I go by height of the cover crop more than I do calendar date when I terminate it. But when you transitioned, you said about 13 years ago, you got out of dairying, you realized you had alfalfa was obviously a very important part of your rotation. What was it about you realized, well, I've got to, I'm going to have to deal with that. I mean, what was, it sounds like maybe erosion was a concern of yours a little bit, and uh, some things like that? Yeah, erosion was my only concern. Back at that time, nobody had even talked about soil health. I didn't even know what soil health was. Um, I was looking at primarily the erosion factor. Today, erosion is almost non-existent for me. I have very highly erodible ground. Today, the soil health, what I've learned about it and what I've gained from cover cropping uh, the soil health would be the number one benefit. Uh, not picking up rocks, I learned real fast, is a major benefit because with no-till, you don't have rocks to pick anymore. And erosion also almost gets moved down to number three on the list of priorities simply because the soil health, uh, I've gained so much in soil health that really that's my number one concern now. So that's what I'm looking at from that avenue. So yeah, describe a little bit your system now, like in a typical year, uh, when you're putting in the cover crops and when you're, um, and then when you're doing the, the planting green. And, and I guess for some people who may not be aware of that, explain what planting green actually is, what you're doing. I plant directly into the standing rye. You can't even see the soil when I'm planting. Between the rye is thick enough that it looks just like you're planting into a pasture grass. I seed 50 pounds an acre because I'm not harvesting it. If you were going to harvest the rye for feed, you would, most guys go up to 100 pounds plus at that point in time trying to get maximum tonnage. Um, the ground is basically covered solid, so at 50 pounds an acre, I'm even considering dropping back maybe to 40 or 45 because sometimes I think it's so thick it could give the crop more competition than I'd like, but it also gives me weed control. When I terminate the rye, there is basically not a weed out there because the rye is so thick, it has totally 
suppress the weeds until you terminate it, and then the weeds will come after that. But at least you're later in the year then. So whenever I talk to somebody about planting green, I, I think that first time that you did that, what was that like? You must have went, man, is this going to work? And Because that's a pretty intimidating situation to go into, not to have that soil black and you know tilled. And uh, you must have had some couple of nervous days uh, uh, before that you actually went, okay, this stuff's going to germinate. Uh, yeah, it, it is, a, like I say, a learning curve. Um, you are hesitant to do it. My biggest concern was the competition to the crop. It's like, how can the crop even come through this stuff? But it does, uh, especially beans. Uh, they're, uh, you know, they're coming through all the last year's residue and that rye, and they come right through it just fine, no problems. The two things I noticed when you convert until you get soil health built up because you have zero microbiology, good biology when you till because tillage kills all that. You have about five-year process in there that you're going to have trouble with crop residue not decaying until you get soil health built up. On a corn bean rotation, it's not quite as bad. You will still have corn stalks out there combining beans in the first couple of years. Corn on corn, it can, it's kind of scary uh, because of the amount of residue that just doesn't decay. Now today, I have zero. Uh, uh, when I go combine beans, you would never know it was corn the previous year. Them stalks are totally gone because of all the good bacteria in the soil and all the earthworms. I'm averaging 15 to 18 earthworms per shovel of dirt now that the, the good bacteria is built up and with the cover crop roots, it, it makes all the difference in the world. Another issue you're going to have for the first few years when you make the transition is it's extremely difficult to get the seed furrow close behind your corn planter because tilled ground is so hard that even a brand new corn planter can't hardly close the seed furrow, so then you lose germination. So the first few years, you might have to vertical till it very, very lightly in front of the planter, or you, you just can't get the seed furrow close. It's a problem when your soil is that hard. Today, my soil is so mellow, I don't even run down pressure a lot on the corn planter, simply because I don't even need it. Uh, the the seed just the corn planter goes right into the depth you got it set closing the seed furrow is not a problem once you get your ground mellowed out but that is going to be a five-year process well i can vouch for the fact that you've got some good biological activity going on there because we were a little over a week ago you were, you had a field day here and we went out into these soybeans here across the road and yeah you, there was no residue in there you really had it kind of built up that soil biome to the point where it's it's um, working that biologic it's working that residue right into the soil. Uh, yeah, it it just takes time. That's why I say I don't recommend anybody do 100% of their acres all at once because I'm not saying you're going to have a yield hit the first year, but it is possible. Primarily because you could de be dealing with poor stand you got less population, you might take a yield hit that way. And you're going to get less population that first year or two just because of your soil conditions. Uh, it's, it's part of the transition period. Mm -hmm. uh, and as far as seeding the rye, I have tried 
planting it with a drill, but it is extremely slow, not really cost effective. So I don't like to do it that way. I broadcast potash in the fall with the rye in a fertilizer spreader. So you're covering approximately 40 acres an hour. And then I use the vertical till approximately three quarters of an inch deep to incorporate it some. That I call the vertical till my rye planter um, because I can do 20 acres an hour with that. And anything that is combined today, I like to seed tomorrow morning because I want that seeded in the fall as fast as possible. So I basically keep up with the combine. The vertical till at half to three quarters of an inch deep not only incorporates the rye seed, but it also helps level off any tracks from the combine, gravity wagons, uh, you know, that type of deal. It really makes combining the following fall a lot easier because your ground is definitely more level than if you just went out and true no-tilled. I do true no-till a few acres, always in an experiment, and I can always tell it combining the following year, the sickle doesn't follow the ground as easy on the beans. So that's why I do it that way. Time is, at that time of year, time is very critical to me. I want that seed in the ground as fast as possible, most acres per hour. And what kind of mix, are you using mostly just rye? Yes, because of the time of the year, I do not chop corn silage. So last year, I think I finished combine in May or November 5th. So that was the last day I seeded. This year, combine is going to be later. So if you're trying to plant end October, 1st of November, you're not going to get anything to germinate and grow other than rye. So it's not cost effective for me to put other mixes in there just because of the time of the year. Uh, another thing I will mention is chopping stocks does not work very well with no-till. You create that fine mat on the ground. It is totally covered. You could attract slugs, army worms, potentially. You're creating a mat that doesn't dry out in the spring. Uh, it keeps your ground insulated, probably a little colder. So I found out chopping stocks does not work unless you're going to remove the stocks. I, I do have steers here, so I have pen pack manure, and I do bale some of the stocks for bedding. So those are the only stocks I chop is the fields I'm going to bale and remove them. So that is one thing I've learned. Chopping stocks just doesn't work very well with no-till. So tell me a little bit more about when you were first considering looking at things like no-till, you just said it's not going to work here. Um, what was it that you were hearing or what, was, what were you seeing that you felt like it's just not going to work in this part of southeast Minnesota? Everybody is so against no-till I think a lot of it, from what I heard in this area, we have a lot of clay. Clay doesn't, you know, you got to break up the clay somehow. Mm -hmm. Another thing is the, we, you're going to have more weeds. How do you get your fertilizer incorporated? The ground will never warm up in the spring. It, it's just, I heard nothing but negatives about it. So... That for I was very hesitant to try it. There at that point in time, there wasn't a lot of people in my neighborhood doing it that I could 
kind of feed off of. I was learning as I went. Now today, we have majority of the people within five miles of here are going no till or minimum till of some kind. Uh, everybody's doing it. Everybody's learning from everybody else. And now the hesitancy to try it isn't nearly as strong in this area, but you get outside of this neighborhood and it's still the old way of thinking, no, it won't work for me. Any business net profit is more important than gross income. And it's very easy to increase your net profit big time with minimum till or no till and really not lose any income. So therefore your your profit is really going up with no till. That is one of the biggest things I've noticed. I've never made the money per acre I'm making now when I was doing full tillage. It's um, very, very profitable. Your My diesel fuel is approximately 40% of what it used to be, which means less hours on the tractor, less oil changes, less man hours. It's the big total picture. I have sold all of my tillage equipment. I kept it in a shed for how many years thinking I might need it. A lot of people said, well, after you know till five or six years, you'll have such a hard pan, you can't farm it anymore. Well, that's the exact opposite. After you know till five or six years, your hard pan is gone. Your ground is so mellow. So I no longer own any tillage equipment. I'm totally committed to this system. So far, I have found no downfalls from it. Uh, it's been nothing but good other than the, that transition period. You, you can have some issues there, but I'm not going to say you're going to lose a lot of money on it. You have to remember if you do take a small yield decrease, you've got a lot less expense. As far as the fertilizer in the spring, a lot of people are concerned about not incorporating it. Well, I don't. Um, I just spread it on top of the ground. It's in the standing rye. I do use a stabilizer on the urea, and generally we're going to get rain within a week of when you spread it. So the rain incorporates it, and you've already I've got Contel on there as a stabilizer for the urea. So I don't see any reason to incorporate it, don't feel there's any benefit, once again, it's an additional cost. Every time you turn the key on that tractor, it's costing you money. So if the tractors never come out of the shed, uh, it's to your benefit. I will say this, all of my tractors are full GPS mapping auto steer. So that can be a problem, especially spreading rye in the fall on corn stalks if you don't have that you might want to hire the elevator to come out and do it because you have absolutely no idea where you are. Same thing with spraying in the spring. If you have foam markers, the foam will just fall down into the rye and you can't see it, you can't find it. So if you don't have GPS and mapping, you're really not going to know where you are with the sprayer. I think that's a super good point you make about the difference between net income and gross income. I mean, you're a mechanic. And so you know the upkeep and maintenance that goes into the equipment and, you know, you obviously monitor your, your uh, fuel and all of that. And, uh, you know, often people really get stuck in that rut of, well, high, the highest yields possible automatically equal high net profit. And that's not necessarily the case. No, your local co-op and elevator really isn't fond of no-till because we have 
less business with them. Uh, I was down to 147 pounds of actual N per acre. At that point, I did see a slight yield increase, I mean decrease. So I went back up to 187. But that's, uh, you know, I'm running a lot of 240 bushel corn. So if I can get that on 187 pounds of N, that's still a lot less than what your local elevator is recommending you use. So I'm saving money and I'm not giving it all to him. So there's a lot of ways to save money with this system. Talk a little bit about some of the other advantages because erosion was a big concern of yours and building soil health. But uh, it sounds like maybe you've gotten, you've seen some results. And I mean, how long have you been kind of in this fully integrated cover crop no-till system? Well, 13 years ago is when I would have started experimenting with it. But it's probably only been six or seven years that I started with the cover crops. And like I say, it was the last three years that I've been 100%. Until then, it was... Uh, Cover crop following beans only, never considered putting it on the corn stalks. Now I feel there's enough financial benefit to do that. Uh, right now, this year, rye is running that 27 to 28 cents a pound. So at 50 pounds an acre, you're looking at $14 an acre. I, I, well, I feel it's very well worth $14 an acre for the benefit I'm getting out of that rye between erosion control, weed control, and soil biology buildup. When you terminate that rye, it takes two to three months to disintegrate into the soil. That's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I'm top dressing nitrogen because as that rye is decaying into the soil, it is giving me continuous nitrogen back into the soil. So that's most of the summer. Um, one of the things, I think you're, a, are you a township officer or something? You, you had talked a little bit about some of the erosion you had seen in the, in the neighborhood this spring yet when we had a really heavy, heavy rain. At the, the, you know, that's a, that's a cost that you see off the farm a little bit with, with having this bare soil. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm on the township board. And this May, we had a three-inch shot, a two-inch shot, and then another three-inch shot all came within like a half hour. And we had places in our township that guys had to go out with loaders and scoop their dirt out of the road ditch. We had culverts that were plugged. And then you drive by a no-till farm and the water was still standing, or the grass was still standing in the ditch. We didn't even have enough water to run off of the uh, farm to flatten the grass in the ditch. That's how much difference it made. One of the farms I rent, the landowner had a pond on the bottom of every waterway to catch all the water runoff from his fields. Today we cut hay right through them ponds because there's not even enough water to run off the fields anymore with no-till and cover crop that the water ever accumulates in the ponds. That's how much difference it makes. One thing that you had mentioned before that really struck me was in looking at things like trying to get some of these soil conservation measures put on the land, that maybe an area that we haven't focused on as much as, it, as, it, as we should is the role that landowners and landlords play in all of this, that really we need to get the message across to them because there's a lot of people renting land. And if you're just on a year-to-year -year lease, maybe you don't have an incentive to put in cover crops or some of these other soil health building practices. But if we could get that message across to landowners um, that 
we really need some of these practices in place, and that they are um, they are going to build that the quality of that farmland in the in the long term. That that's a really key piece right there. Yes, it seems like today we have more and more landlords that have never actually farmed. A lot of them inherited the farm from their uncle, their grandpa, so in that situation. And they really don't understand the value of soil health or erosion. All they care about is the highest rent they can get. And that becomes an issue. Even if you're conventional tillage, you're not going to put on extra fertilizer. You're not going to do anything to take care of the ground because if you've got a one-year contract and every year it's going to be somebody else's if you don't match high bid, you don't end up taking really good care of the soil. You're just there. And and that is an issue, and I don't know how to address it to landlords that, you know, soil health is important. Soil health takes time to build up. So you need to give somebody a three- to five-year contract with extension at the end of that so they can go out there and spend some money, extra money, building soil health, knowing that they're going to have it to get some of the benefits back. It sounds like really, so you had, you, you started looking into no-till like 13 years ago and there was a lot of uh, negative information out there about it, but it sounds like maybe one of the things that's really helped you, particularly in recent years, doing integrating cover crops into that is being able to network with other farmers that are doing some of these practices. It sounds like that kind of farmer to farmer networking and education is really key to getting some of these practices on more farmland. Yeah, because everybody's everybody's always trying something new the next year. You know, it might work, might not. You try it on a field. And different people are different situations. The There's some guys with beef cattle that are trying to graze their ground over winter, so they're looking at interseeding, trying to get a cover crop going that as soon as they combine, there's feed there for the beef cattle. I'm not in that situation, so... That doesn't apply to me, but for those guys, yes, they're constantly experimenting with different ways to get feed growing out there. Uh, another thing I'll point out is I did mention that I like to terminate the rye at that 14 to 16 inches. I do feel that everything over that starts costing you yield because the rye will take in more nitrogen than it will decay that first year if you let it get over that 16 inches. One year in my experimenting process, I let the rye get about three feet tall. It was starting to head out, and I terminated it at that time. Those fields yielded 35 to 40 bushels an acre less on the corn. That's how bad it hurt it. There's a lot of guys trying roller crimping right now, and the benefit to roller crimping is your rye is so much taller that by the time you roll it, you hopefully have suppressed the weeds for the entire year and you're creating a mat to keep the weeds down. The downside to that is, um, what are you going to do to offset the fertilizer intake? Are you going to come back with a second uh, coat of urea? Or what, you know, you're going to take a big yield hit if you let the rye get that tall because it is really taking a lot of nutrients out of the soil by that height. Any advice for somebody who's just looking at this and maybe is intimidated by, first of all, no-till, but maybe intimidated by planting green? Um, what, what, what advice would you give for somebody who's just starting to look into this? Maybe they're doing 
more conventional cropping and but want to stick their toe in the water here? Make sure you give it a fair trial. Don't try it one year in a situation that there's no possible way it can work and then say, well, it didn't work for me, so I'm never doing it again. You have to give it a fair chance. And by a fair chance, I mean don't go chisel plow the ground in the fall before you seed it down in rye. You're, you're really destroying it. Don't try and work the ground in the spring before you plant it. If you don't have a fairly modern corn planter, it might be to your benefit to hire somebody that does for the first year so you can have a better chance of getting a better population stand and the seed furrow close. Don't be afraid to hire somebody with a vertical till those first couple years in front of the corn planter so you can get the seed furrow closed. Um, if you're spreading the rye and fertilizer and you can't see where you are, if you don't have GPS on your tractor, it's expensive to upgrade that way. Maybe you're better off hiring somebody that's got it, the local elevator or somebody, just till you get this transition period going better. It will cost you some money, but you're increasing your odds of it working at that point in time when you're first starting. I kind of get the sense maybe that this is... Uh, some of this experimentation you've done and as you've kind of gotten it established and, and uh, are starting to see some consistent uh, results here, this is kind of fun for you a little bit. Uh, maybe, uh, you, you know, you, you were doing dairy farming for a long time and you, you transitioned out of that and that this is really kind of a way you feel like you're making cropping kind of a sustainable uh, way of both economically and I guess from a conservation point of view but it sounds like you're having a little bit of fun with this. Uh, yeah if you're making money it's always more enjoyable and when you can say that you know look at other people and how much erosion they've got and I don't have that no more you can smile and say well at least I'm protecting the soil so yeah it, it is I would say more enjoyable and you also spend so many less hours out in the field. Not that I didn't enjoy it, but it goes back to the finances again of when the tractors aren't out in the field, you're making more money. For more on ways to build soil health profitably, Check out the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode number 286 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Morgandale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.